0: Hey everybody, this is CJ, your hazardous history helmsman and self-anointed renaissance man for this new dark age in which we find ourselves doing my part to attempt, emphasis on attempt, to tend the flickering flame of enlightenment as the zombie plague rages endlessly on around us. Tongue in cheek, parentheses, by the way, for those of you who don't do subtle and who were about to accuse me of all sorts of pretentiousness. You're listening to episode 111 of the Dangerous History Podcast, where we always do our best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future. And in this episode, I'm going to be talking about studying and analyzing the small select group of people known as the Power Elite looking at them as a sociological and historical phenomenon. But before I get into that, I've got a bunch of people I've got to thank. There's an embarrassment of riches. Wonderful people to thank for stepping up to help support the show on an ongoing basis via Patreon. So my Patreon shoutouts, my thank yous are to the following people this time. Mateo, Darko, David, Stephen, Bulldozer, Brad, Nico, and Chris – Thank you all very, very, very much for stepping up to help out the Dangerous History Podcast over at patreon.com profcj. And to those of you listening, just a reminder, if you like this show, want to help it out, there are many ways to do it. One of the most helpful is to sign up to support the show on a per-episode donation basis via Patreon. And if you sign up for at least $1 per episode, and of course, I always welcome and appreciate larger pledges than that, but for just a minimum of $1 per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I make. And you'll also have access to special bonus Dangerous History podcast episodes that are available only to my $1 or more per episode Patreon supporters. By the way, the newest one of those should be out in the near future, and that'll be the last seven of my 21 key concepts and theories. And the first two parts of that series I did as regular Dangerous History podcast episodes, and they've been quite well received. So if you want to hear my last seven, please consider signing up to support the show via Patreon. A few other brief announcements. One is that I've now acquired the the domain DangerousHistoryPodcast.com, and I have parked it so that it takes you to my website. So now you and I have a much easier to say and easier to remember web address when telling people, especially telling them verbally how to find the DHP's website. Last thing I'll mention today before I jump into the meat of the episode is that LRN.FM is currently doing an Indiegogo fundraising campaign to expand their satellite broadcasting of LRN.FM into different parts of the world so that shows like the Dangerous History podcast and the many, many other great shows available on LRN.fm can be shared around the world, even to people who may not have good or reliable or regular internet access. So, I will put a link to that fundraising campaign in the show notes for this episode, so please check that out and consider donating if you can. So, on to the Power Elite and Power Elite analysis. Today, I'm going to give you a bit of background on the whole notion of Power Elite analysis. This episode might seem a bit all over the place, but I want to sort of mix together information on the concept of the Power Elite, some of the ways that the topic can be and has been approached, and some of my own thoughts on things to keep in mind, whether you're doing your own Power Elite research and analysis, or you're consuming the work done by others and trying to separate fact from well, what we might maybe put it charitably as less than fact. This episode is not intended to be definitive in any way or like my final word on the subject, but rather it's just some of my thoughts on how this has been approached and how it should be approached and so on. So first thing is, what is the power elite? Or perhaps maybe you could phrase it as who are the power elite? And it's one of those terms that, in a way, can be kind of as simple or as complex as you want to make it. So I'll give you a few different definitions I found on the interwebs recently. From CollinsDictionary.com, the power elite is defined as a small group of people who have disproportionately large amount of control or influence over society, politics, wealth, global affairs, etc., Then from psychologydictionary.org, we have the power elite defined as the concept of a minimal amount of powerful people, particularly political, corporate, military, or religious leaders, who attain the most superior positions of authority in their respective organizations and share a typical attitude and morals. That's a pretty good one. Interestingly, the psychology dictionary is one of the places that has one of the best definitions, I think, one of the most accurate and holistic definitions of the term power elite. And then from sociologydictionary.org, and you would think they would have one of the better definitions, better than the psychology dictionary, because power elite, at least that specific phrase to describe this phenomenon, really comes out of sociology. And yet sociologydictionary.org has one of the most minimalist definitions around, a small group of wealthy and influential people at the top of society who hold the power and resources, which certainly is not inaccurate, but is, to me, a little bit too simplistic. Now, to my way of thinking a really key part of understanding what the power elite is or who they are is power itself. In other words, it's not just being wealthy, and it's not just being famous or influential. The way I see it, to truly be a member of the power elite, you need in one way or another to be connected to power. There are plenty of very rich and or famous people that I would not consider part of the power elite. Likewise, there are plenty of people who aren't super rich and or super famous who are very much a part of the power elite. So it's not a one-to-one correlation with wealth or even with fame and influence. When you think of typical quote-unquote celebrities, for example, very few of them I would consider part of the power elite or plugged into the power elite. And a related concept that I just want to mention briefly that I think helps one understand how the power elite steers people's beliefs is a concept that I mentioned in one of the episodes I did on slavery a while back, and that is the idea of cultural hegemony. I think cultural hegemony is a very important part of how the power elite is able to often without even consciously setting about to do so on their part, how they're able to exercise so much influence on the so-called common people and often do it without direct threats of force. Now, the force is always part of the equation, but power elites generally, in the modern era at least, tend to prefer, as plan A, the velvet glove to the iron fist. Now, the iron fist can come out when they want to, but they understand that it's... A uh, risky and costly way to rely on the iron fist as plan A. Now, just briefly from Wikipedia's page on hegemony and the section talking about cultural hegemony, just so you, to, to review this, the Marxist theory of cultural hegemony associated particularly with Antonio Gramsci, is the idea that the ruling class can manipulate the value system and mores of society, so that their view becomes the worldview, Weltanschauung. In Terry Eagleton's words, Gramsci normally uses the word hegemony to mean the ways in which a governing elite, sorry, a governing power wins consent to its rule from those it subjugates, end quote. So keep that in mind that that's a big part of what's going on. When you have a small elite group who are connected to each other in various ways at the tops of all the important institutions of society, they're able to get their way a lot of the time without even remotely having to rely on brute force because they're able to, with the positions they have and the influences they have, they're able to make their worldview kind of the the way things are and the way things are supposed to be and so on amongst much of the population, even those who are not remotely power elite and don't share the same interests as them. So we've got a basic idea of the power elite. And now I just want to mention briefly what I mean when I say power elite analysis. Quite simply, it's using serious scholarly techniques, of research and analysis to try to get an accurate picture of, at any given time, because this is not fixed over the course of time, to get an accurate picture of who the power elite are, how they interact with each other, relate with each other, how they influence and control the state and other key institutions, and thereby influence and control the wider population. And if you're talking specifically about the American power elite, as I'm doing here, for the most part, you've got to keep in mind that their influence and control is not just on the people living within the jurisdiction of the United States, but it's global. Because especially since World War II, the U.S. has been a major global power and for a while has been the superpower. So to put it in simple terms, power elite analysis is about trying to identify the powerful and to identify who's doing what and why among those groups. Now, I want to emphasize power elite analysis done correctly is not conspiracy theorizing. Done right, basing it on solid research and serious sociological historical and or economic thinking power elite analysis should have as much respect as any other serious intellectual endeavor but interestingly it rarely gets that sort of respect and so as a result relatively few people in conventional academia go down the road of seriously studying the power elite of course When you look at how much of conventional academia is funded and controlled by the very power elite in one way or another in the first place, perhaps that's not really surprising at all. Let's face it, the powers that be would really not want a lot of smart, intelligent, middle and working class people thinking for themselves and doing serious, realistic power elite analysis, and so they don't really want that kind of research to be done in kind of the standard mainstream realm through which many people get their perception of things like history and sociology and so on, whether first, second, third, fourth hand, or whatever. Interestingly, I'll just mention some sources indicate that the CIA itself really started pushing the terms conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist into the popular lexicon as a kind of shorthand way to dismiss anyone who questioned any official story as a crazy person who did not even deserve to be refuted, just smeared and ridiculed and then ignored. Now, the timing of this pushing of these terms into people's everyday language and into the mainstream lexicon in the 1960s and 70s, according to this view, coincided with growing public skepticism over the Warren Commission's version of the Kennedy assassination and the supposed complete lack of any conspiracy around that. And so it was kind of a psyop intended to ridicule, as basically being almost mentally ill, anyone who questioned the official explanation of important things like the kennedy assassination now other sources really downplay this notion that the cia and perhaps other government agencies and their plants in the media and so on which we know that the cia was running a lot of american media outlets either directly or indirectly throughout the cold war and we would assume is still doing so today very likely not in a in a crude sense. Of Every media corporation is a CIA front or anything like that, but just through various ways, kind of nudging the narrative in their direction and planting the stories they want to plant. But anyway, these more skeptical sources that don't think it was really CIA types or whatever, who pushed the conspiracy theory smear into popular language and the popular mind. Point out that these terms, conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist, have been used as smears and insults in America since at least the late 19th century. And honestly, at the end of the day, to me, the argument about whether or not the terms conspiracy theorist and conspiracy theory really came from government agencies, at least in terms of getting into the popular. Mind in the 20th century, or whether it was around and used in that disparaging sense that we all know for a lot longer than that, that's really kind of a red herring because to me, it doesn't really matter the exact origins of those terms used in that sense to denote crazy kooks. Whether it started in the 1960s or the 1870s, not terribly important because either way, that's how the term is used by the state and by its media mouthpieces today. And that's how a lot of people perceive it. And it's become such a common knee-jerk term, conspiracy theorist, that it's often used to smear people who are making claims that are totally backed up by actual evidence, if those claims are involving things that are outside the narrow, controlled, mainstream narrative of history, or things that most people are just simply ignorant of. So just for example, I can imagine telling someone, and I I don't have to imagine because I do this all the time in my history classes, I can imagine telling someone about things like MKUltra, or Operation Paperclip, or Operation Underworld, to name just a few very, very shady government projects that we know about as fact, not theory, fact. You know, I have random college students coming through my U.S. History 2 class punching out Gen Ed credits who are not history majors, not terribly curious about history. And frankly, a lot of history majors would also be clueless about things like MKUltra or Paperclip or Underworld. But imagine just going up to some random person on the street who's never heard the tiniest hint of these things, which are totally not theory. And even though all of these things are proven. I think it's not hard to imagine that an average, ignorant person's first knee-jerk response, at least nine times out of ten, is not going to be when confronted with something like N- MKUltra or Operation Paperclip. Really, that's an interesting claim. I'm intrigued enough that I'd like you to share your footnotes with me so that I can take an unbiased look into this and figure out what I think is true or false. Nine times out of ten or more, that's not going to be the response you're going to get. Much more likely, there'd be something more along the lines of groans, eye-rolling, and thoughts, or perhaps even saying the dreaded C-word, conspiracy theorist. But I digress. I would say that an honest and competent practitioner of power-elite analysis does not make fact-claims that go beyond the evidence. He may at times speculate when the dots are almost connected, but not quite. But when he's speculating, he should always preface such speculations clearly by pointing out that they are in fact speculations. So if you want an example of someone who I think does this really well, read the book Family of Secrets, a great book about the Bush family by Russ Baker. Very extensively documented and footnoted, and he sticks to the evidence he has, and when he doesn't quite have enough evidence to 100% prove a theory that he's putting forth, he says so in an upfront and honest way. So, power elite analysis done right is not conspiracy theorizing. Now, I want to talk a little bit about C. Wright Mills, because he actually wrote a book almost 60 years ago called The Power Elite, which is one of probably the Probably is the most important place where this term and this way of looking at things comes from. And C. Wright Mills is one of the most influential sociologists of 20th century America. So this is not a guy who's some conspiracy kook or anything like that. Mills was an interesting guy. He only lived from 1916 to 1962. He died from a heart attack at the age of 45. He had had heart trouble much of his life, and he was a guy who kind of lived fast and lived hard and died relatively young. He was really kind of a rebel and a rock star of an academic, both in terms of being sort of a celebrity as well as having a volatile personality and supposedly lots of marital affairs and really kind of lived a somewhat rock star lifestyle, especially by the standards of 1940s and 50s American academia standards. Among other things, he rode around on motorcycles and wore plaid flannel shirts. Yeah, not very common among academics of that that time period. Even today, that would be seen as kind of weird and eccentric. Now, Mills was a leftist, but he was the kind of leftist I really liked. He was very much an independent, anti-establishment leftist, not just, you know, another New Deal apologist mouthpiece tool. He's often seen as one of the intellectual godfathers of the so-called New Left, and I could be wrong, but if I remember right, I think he even coined the term New Left towards the end of his life. In 1956, Mills published what may be one of his most well-known and influential works, certainly to the non-sociologists to the wider world, and that is the book entitled The Power Elite. And Mills saw the power elite as the people who really ran the key institutions of society. And he grouped those institutions into three large categories, the political world, the corporate world, and the military. And Mills mainly saw the power elite's presence at that time early Cold War America, their presence, their influence and control in the spheres of high levels of government, the corporate world, the media, academia, and the military. And understand, he wasn't talking about the lower or middle levels of these institutions. He wasn't talking about enlisted men or NCOs or junior officers of the military. He was talking about the very high up generals, especially like at the Joint Chiefs of Staff level and so on. And looking at governments and corporations, he wasn't talking about the -the run-of-the-mill bureaucrats and so on. He was talking about the people really running and making decisions in these institutions. In contrast to how elites in other countries often see themselves, Mills thought that the American power elite, at least as of the 1950s, was largely not even really conscious of being a power elite. That said, they clearly were pursuing interests of their own class rather than for the people at large, even if they again, may not have always seen it that way. So, for example, Stephen Kinzer does a good job in his work on the Dulles brothers, describing how the Dulles brothers seem to have truly believed that what was good for big American corporations was exactly the same, was identical with what was good for the American people as a whole. So the Dulles brothers, to look at that example, they really didn't need to believe that they were doing the work of the power elite in order to vigorously do just that for nearly a decade at the highest levels of American power. Well, getting back to Mills, Mills saw the power elite as clearly being individuals and families who are interconnected with each other in various ways in terms of business connections, social connections, marital and family connections, and so on. They're members of the same clubs, the same foundations, the same charity boards, etc. But they're somewhat loosely interconnected with each other. They're not a super tight, organized, lockstep group in a lot of ways. They didn't have to be in lockstep on everything, however, to work toward the same goals because they tended to share the same basic worldview and mindset. They might differ amongst themselves on some specific uh, issues and things, but in the the big picture, they shared most of the same views. And Mills saw the so-called post-war bipartisan consensus and the conformity of viewpoints on a lot of key issues as important parts and important symptoms of the power elite's influence as a class. And by the way, he saw the garrison state or the national security state or the permanent war economy or whatever you want to call it, or the military industrial complex, whatever that began during World War II, but which was cemented and made basically permanent in the late 40s in the early Cold War as a central part of this elite and their livelihood and their influence and so on. Now, before we move on to mention some others, I just want to say that you got to wonder what C. Wright Mills might have thought and written about the American power elite had he not died so young. Like, let's say if he had had no heart problems and had lived to be 90, what might he have had to say about how the American power elite changed and or remained the same throughout the rest of the Cold War and on into the post-Cold War era. What would he think about the American power elite in kind of more present-day terms? you got to wonder. Another individual whose work I want to mention in this regard is a somewhat notorious guy in a lot of our kind of circles, probably, and that's Carol Quigley, who you might consider the mid-20th century historian of the Anglo-American power elite. Carol Quigley, in his gigantic book, Tragedy and Hope, A History of the World in Our Time, have become pretty notorious in a lot of circles. But I'll just mention a little bit about them for those who've not heard of Quigley and this famous book. I don't think he ever used the term power elite, but Carol Quigley, who was prominent american historian in the mid-20th century spilled the beans on some of the so-called anglo-american power elite and their impact on world history quigley was i think the first at least the first serious legitimate academic to really delve into things like cecil rhodes's efforts to create a secret society to build up the british empire and to bring the united states into the project via something known as the roundtable movement which set up franchises in various parts of the english-speaking world by the way in most places these franchises of the roundtable movement were called royal institutes on international affairs though in the u.s for obvious reasons they couldn't call their franchise by that name because it would look pretty fishy So instead, they called the U.S. franchise of this whole thing the Council on Foreign Relations. Now, in writing about these Anglo-American elites, Quigley was actually generally favorable to them in a lot of ways. And he said in Tragedy and Hope that the only thing he disagreed with them about was their insistence upon secrecy. And so having known some of these people and had access to some of their documents, he kind of wrote a history of the world in which he also worked in some of this power elite stuff. Quigley was a professor at Georgetown University for many years, and just as a side note, many of you may already know this, his most famous student during that time was a young man named Bill Clinton, not famous then, but obviously famous later. And Bill Clinton, according to the interwebs, got a B in Quigley's class, which was actually very, very good, because... Again, according to the interwebs, supposedly it was a really hard class, and almost half the students in the course on average would get Ds and Fs. Anyway, in this big, giant, massive book, Tragedy and Hope, which was first published in 1966, Quigley presented a history of the world. And a lot of it is pretty extremely dry and dense and kind of fairly conventional historical text. But if you slog your way through it, you'll find these little nuggets here and there. Um, Peppered throughout the book are these little bits and pieces where Quigley drops some inside baseball on what the Anglo-American power elite were up to, especially in the late 19th and early 20th century. And it's very illuminating stuff. The elite that Quigley looks at in this book, however, is really just one faction of the power elite, at one particular era of time. I think people can get led astray by being led to think based on what Quigley wrote, or really, to be more accurate, more commonly, based on what others have said and written about what Quigley wrote, that the Power Elite is this very unified, very monolithic, lockstep group, and also get the impression that they've not changed much, if at all, since Cecil Rhodes's day. And I've got to say, my own view is that the power elite was never truly unified that tightly. It's never been as unified as many people think of it as being. And that since, say, a 100 years or more ago, it's only gotten more fragmented and messy since then. Not to say that, for the most part, they don't share a basic worldview But that's a long way from them all being sort of mindless Star Wars stormtroopers or something, carrying out the plan of one guy. And while I think there's certainly some continuity in families and in basic worldview, it's not frozen in carbonite. But that's another book that I would consider a good sort of starting point to get thinking about this basic topic. Another that I would recommend is checking out some of the works by Murray Rothbard on the Power Elite and Power Elite analysis. And one of the best places is sort of a long essay. I think you can buy it as a skinny little book from the Mises Institute, but you can find it online on various websites, probably on the Mises site itself, and that is Wall Street banks and American foreign policy. That's a great intro to some of Rothbard's view on the American power elite, especially in the 20th century. And I will link to that in the show notes for this episode, as well as to what I consider an absolutely essential lecture delivered by Rothbard from over 30 years ago, about the truth about early American progressivism, the power elite, power elite analysis, and the specific case of the origins of the Federal Reserve System, sort of using that as a case study. In his work, Rothbard focuses a lot on power elite analysis of the kind of progressive era and builds on the work of new left historians like Gabriel Kolko and others. And broadly speaking, Rothbard, like Kolko, saw much of the early 20th century American progressive movement in terms of attempts to reduce, not foster, but reduce free market competition within the American economy and to introduce a more kind of cartelized system With limited competition between a small number of mega corporations, which is the opposite, by the way, of the mainstream narrative that people are still told to this day that the progressives were trying to undo monopolies and foster competition. In particular, Rothbard did a great job exposing and exploring the implications of the Morgan versus Rockefeller rivalry that dominated so much of the American economy and political system from the late 19th century until World War II, when, by the way, the Morgan and Rockefeller gangs of the power elite sort of merged into what then gets sometimes called the Eastern Establishment. Rothbard also largely agreed with the Yankee Cowboy War paradigm put forth by the writer Carl Oglesby in the book entitled The Yankee Cowboy War that I've mentioned on the show before, that during much of the Cold War era, there was this ongoing political and economic battle, and you had the Eastern establishment created, so it's no longer the Morgan gang versus the Rockefeller gang. Now it's a battle between that Eastern establishment elite on the one hand, these more blue-blooded Ivy League types, mostly from the Northeast, such as the Morgan and Rockefeller crowds and their sort of satellite families. And these are the ones that are called the Yankees in this book. And then there's another faction of kind of nouveau riche types mostly from the so-called sunbelt or southern rim of the United States, from places like Florida, Arizona, and especially Texas and Southern California, and that these two factions are battling it out in politics and in other realms as well. So um, one of Rothbard's big things that he urged that's still not done that often, but which, if done, is often very revealing, is simply looking into the background of government officials, especially high-ranking ones, Presidents, senators, congressmen, sure, but not just them. Also looking at cabinet secretaries, heads of the Federal Reserve, in other words, the appointed offices, and looking into these people's backgrounds and just simply asking the basic question. Look at their resume. What did these people do before and after being in some high-level, powerful political office? What are their financial ties? Who backed their rises to power? And Rothbard argues, and if you listen to the lecture I'm going to link to on YouTube, he argues You'll hear it there that that you could get a more accurate view of who's really doing what and why they're really doing it when you dig into these questions. It's very simple. A lot of this stuff these days can be uncovered in a minute or two on the Internet. You know, you look into the background of some particular chairman of the Fed or secretary of the Treasury and just very simple. Okay, before he had that job, what did he do? And did he have, Did he do anything after that job, or did he just retire? And if he didn't retire, what did he do after that? And you usually find that there are multiple levels of regulatory capture in the revolving door, including a level very high up for members of the power elite. By the way, I'll also mention briefly George Carlin, one of my favorite philosophers of all time, actually had some very intelligent things to say about the American power elite, And uh, perhaps I'll link to some of that in the show notes as well. I want to emphasize, though, because I think it deserves to be emphasized again, because there's there's a tendency amongst people who attempt power elite analysis to start to see everything as part of this vast lockstep conspiracy where like everybody's reading from the same secret script or whatever. And I want to emphasize the power elite are not and never really have been unified or monolithic to that degree. This is where I think a lot of the more kind of tinfoil hatter crowd gets it really wrong. There are factions, there are rivalries, there are substantive differences of opinion on how things should be run and so forth. Now, on these differences of opinion, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that it really matters if you go vote for somebody or whatever. I'm not advocating that at all. I believe that these differences of opinion rarely, if ever, have significant implications for the common American in terms of them being better or worse off. So, for example, if a couple of different factions of the power elite don't agree on whether or not Bear Stearns or AIG should be bailed out... I don't think that to us plebeians down here, that that's something to get really worked up about that disagreement. Like whether you bail out Bear Stearns or AIG doesn't really matter. Us regular folks are going to get screwed regardless. That's the way I see it. Likewise, if they're arguing about whether Team America should attack Syria first and then Iran or Iran first and then Syria, or if they're arguing about whether Team America, whether it'd be more desirable for Team America to have a new Cold War with China or a new Cold War with Russia, like it doesn't really matter that much which one they choose, which faction gets their way, whether it's to have a Cold War with China or Cold War with Russia crowd which one gets their way, the average folks are going to get screwed in the deal regardless. And who knows, sometimes they compromise by giving both bad things. (laughs) They both get their way. So maybe you'll simultaneously have a Cold War against both Russia and China. Again, to sum up, I think there are real substantive differences between various power elite factions on issues, but that when it comes to things that really might liberate or potentially empower the average folks like us, Well, it's funny how they can be actually rather monolithic on those sorts of issues. Now, there are lots of different ways you can look at and attempt to understand the power elite in practice. And I just want to mention a few examples of ways that you could try to dig into understanding these people and what they believe and why they're doing what they're doing. And one place to dig into this would be looking into educational backgrounds, And here, in a lot of cases, you're looking at a handful of elite prep schools, especially the ones that are boarding schools. That's where, like, the real elite send their kids. Places like Phillips Academy Andover, Phillips Exeter Academy, St. Paul's, etc. And then, of course, look at the Ivy League universities, as well as a handful of other elite non-Ivy League universities. Also look at places like Oxford and Cambridge, Where a lot of elite Americans do at least some of their schooling. And when you're looking at this, you look at not just where a person went to school, but you look at their social connections while they were there. Who is it verified that they were friends with, roommates with? Um, in clubs together with, and so on, other students who also are part of the power elite, and so on, and you can also try to dig into what teachers and professors a student had, and what types of relationships they might have had with those teachers. So that can sometimes give you a window into what's going on. Another place you could look at is social clubs, both conventional as well as the notorious secret and semi-secret clubs, fraternities, etc., Now, almost everybody knows at least a little bit about Skull and Bones, that notorious super elite fraternity at Yale University. But fewer people know that there are other secret fraternities like this at other elite universities. So, for example, you've got the Ivy Club at Princeton. You've got the Sphinx Club at Dartmouth. And you've got, of course, what many people think may be the most influential, not nearly as well known as Skull and Bones, but some people think might even be more important. It's certainly older than Skull and Bones, and has at least as distinguished a roster of members, and that is the Porcilian Club at Harvard University. And by the way, I'm thinking about doing something on the Porcilian Club one of these days on the Dangerous History podcast. But even fewer people than that, who might know about some of these other elite clubs and fraternities, fewer know that there are lots of other private clubs that the power elite often join and participate in post-graduation. And in fact, virtually every large or even fairly large American city has one or more elite private social clubs that members of the power elite often join. And the real power elite, the the fairly high up there members of the power elite, will often be members of various elite private social clubs in different cities so they might be a member of an elite club in DC in New York in Boston etc and depending on you know which one of their houses they're at or which place they're vacationing they're vacationing at they've still got access to quote unquote the right sort of club and people and so on so that's another way you can look into these people and try and figure out the relationships and the motivations and what's going on you can also dig into favorable legislation and or regulation. And again, here, Rothbard and Colco are two great places to start. And you this is something we've talked about on the show before a bunch of times. You look for connections between people who create and or implement legislation and regulation. And then you look at the special interests, usually corporate, who benefit from those things. Another way to look into this that we've done a little bit on this show is looking into covert ops in more detail. And in particular, looking into the backgrounds, including social and familial and financial connections between those who are running intelligence agencies and operations and so on, and those who, quote unquote, coincidentally benefit from important covert ops and probably the most well-known cases of this that we know about have to do with the actions of the Dulles brothers in the 1950s, some of which I've talked about in previous episodes of this podcast. then another angle to dig into to try and understand these people better that I've not done, I don't think, much of if at all on this show, but I probably will at some point in the future, is looking into these tax-exempt foundations, especially the three oldest and most influential ones, the the Carnegie, Ford, and Rockefeller foundations. But also there are smaller ones, not as well known, that also have a powerful influence on things in various ways. So just one example I'm familiar with is the Arthur Vining Davis Foundation, which coincidentally is headquartered just up the road from me in Jacksonville. And which you may ring a bell for you if you watch a lot of PBS documentaries or things like that. You've probably this is brought to you in part by the Arthur Vining Davis Foundation. Among other things, this foundation sponsors all kinds of PBS stuff. Perhaps most conspicuously, they've been sponsoring the work of Ken Burns for nearly 30 years. So there are smaller ones like Arthur Vining Davis that are not up there with the Rockefeller Foundation, but still have an important influence. And then there are newer ones like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that probably, over time, will have an influence up there with the big three of Carnegie, Ford, and Rockefeller. And these tax-exempt corporate foundations often don't get nearly the attention they deserve in terms of their power and influence in our society. And people often mischaracterize and misunderstand what they're really doing and what they're really about. These foundations are a way that the genuine oligarchs can preserve and grow their wealth tax-free, while, of course, the the rising people, the people who are trying to get wealthy, the kind of rising upper middle class types, face very high income tax rates and, and estate taxes and so on. And this is a way that the oligarchs can kind of pull up the ladder behind them so that people trying to rise up the ladder have a very hard time getting to that level. Because even if you're somebody who's worth like a couple million bucks, you're not going to have the same ability to protect your wealth from taxation, to set up one of these sort of foundations and so on that somebody like the Rockefellers would have. So these Tax-exempt foundations are a way for the oligarchy to preserve and grow their wealth tax-free in a way that the people who are trying to rise to the level of wealthy generally cannot, unless, like Bill Gates, they get so ridiculously wealthy so quickly that they're able to do whatever they want to do. And these foundations can also be used by these people, and they are, to turn their piles of money into power and influence, in pursuit of ideological projects. Because, of course, if you've already got billions upon billions of dollars, probably getting a few billion more, well, that's certainly something you're going to try to do. It doesn't hold the same allure that it used to do when you were just, you know, making your first billion. And so now you can start trying to translate your piles of money into piles of power and influence on society and how it's run and so on. Many people think of these things first and foremost as charities, as charitable foundations, and they call them philanthropy and so on. But in reality, a lot of these foundations are much more about managing and influencing and controlling American society and by extension that of the wider world than they are about like giving soup to the homeless or anything like that. That's not really what most of them are up to most of the time. And one of the most powerful ways that these foundations can exert massive influence and control on people's beliefs and on policy and so on is by funding or not funding research and things like documentaries and books and movies, and especially in the the realm of academia, look into how much of academia is funded by these sorts of things and you start to realize that there's not really an open marketplace of ideas within institutional academia. There's just not. It's bought and paid for. And yeah, the occasional unorthodox thing slips through, but there's never going to be really fundamental questioning of the status quo in conventional academia on a wide scale. And I'm not saying that the tax-exempt foundations are the only reason that won't happen. But they're a major part of it. So, this sort of gatekeeper function by controlling all this funding, these foundations can decide what research does or does not get funded, what books do and do not get published, what documentaries do and do not get funded, etc. Now, this is changing somewhat because of the advancement of technology. Of course, everybody knows the gatekeepers are on their last legs in a lot of ways. And now, for example, Some nobody history teacher at a tiny college in kind of Podunksville, like yours truly, can put together something where they can speak to the world directly, potentially, and really fundamentally question the system and not remotely need the money from some big foundation or whatever, not have to be beholden to these people. And I just want to say, you may think I'm right about things or wrong about things, but I'm never intentionally trying to mislead you or trying to nudge you towards believing something for my own ulterior purposes. By the way, John Taylor Gatto, author of The Underground History of, what is the full title? It's something like The Underground History of American Education, I think pretty well-known guy. He talks about some of these foundations' influence on the course of American public schooling and what it has become in the 20th century. And there's also a very interesting book, relatively recent book, and I don't agree with all of its analysis, but but I think it's very good and very important by a writer um can't remember if he's by credentials an historian or political economist or what. But his name is Inderjeet Parmar. He's at one of the universities in London. I forget which one. And the book is entitled Foundations of the American Century, the Ford, Carnegie and Rockefeller Foundations in the Rise of American Power. And it looks in particular at the influence of those big three foundations. And anyway, very interesting book worth checking out. So those are just some of the ways. And I'm sure we'd come up with plenty more if we had all day. But those are just some of the ways that you can kind of dig into the power elite and try and understand who they are and what they're doing and why. So as we're wrapping it up, I I just want to mention some specific things that I try to keep in mind when studying the power elite and that that I humbly suggest that you keep in mind if you study these people as well. And the first one is, and some of these are just reiterating things I've already said, and some of these are bringing up new ideas. The first one is The power elite often operate on quasi-aristocratic lines. There's certainly a lot of family lineage going on in a lot of these uh, people. But, and and that's important to understand and important to look for because it's there. But they also do allow some entrance of, quote-unquote, the right sort of people from among the non-power elite to kind of rise up into their little club. However, I will say it's nearly unheard of for someone... Who's genuinely from the masses to make it high up in the power elite in a single generation. Often it takes multiple generations of a family, starting off as kind of nouveau riche, and then over time, gradually, you know, sending its subsequent generations to the right schools, joining the right clubs, learning the right sorts of etiquette things, socializing and intermarrying with the right people for a few generations, etc., until they're accepted in relatively high circles of the power elite. And if you study the rise of the kennedy family you see an example of this in practice in great detail of how they kind of wormed their way up and now they're considered part of america's quasi royalty aristocracy but if you go back a few generations they were considered somewhat uncouth nouveau riche types and for many many more examples in much more detail on this process and how it works this process of entry into the power elite check out the book who rules america by G. William Domhoff. My next point to keep in mind when studying the power elite is often you need at least a couple of decades, if not more, to get a really accurate picture of what was what within the power elite due to, number one, the increased analytical clarity you get from some hindsight, and number two, the tendency of bits and pieces of secrets to only see the light of day years after the fact if they ever do a lot of times they just never do and we'll never know but when things do come out it's rarely as things are happening it's usually 10 20 30 50 more years after the fact that bits of the truth that were secret get out and of course this is very convenient for the powers that be because if something comes out 50 years after it happened then people are much less likely to be emotionally invested in things and are going to be less angry and less interested. So, for example, Operation Northwoods, which I did a Patreon bonus episode about a while ago, it was exposed over 30 years after the plan went down and was eventually stopped by Robert McNamara and John F. Kennedy. Now, you can imagine what it might have been like if operation northwoods was exposed back in uh, 1962 it would have caused possibly a-, a revolution or virtually so but since it wasn't exposed till over 30 years later it was kind of like wow that's interesting wow that's some pretty wild stuff oh i'm just going to assume they don't do things like that anymore or just to illustrate this concept further that things get out you know many years after the fact when people don't care as much in an emotional sense hypothetically imagine absolute 100% ironclad proof that FDR knew Pearl Harbor was coming and deliberately stood down and let it happen. Imagine if that proof came out in 2025. Now, do you think there would be anything like the emotional response on the part of the people having that proof theoretically come out in 2025 as if it had come out in 1943? I mean, you know, over 80 years after the fact, literally no one's alive who was ever alive during Pearl Harbor. There, it's it's, it's going to be kind of a shrug. But if it had happened, if proof like that had been exposed in 1943, again, might have led to like revolution in the streets. But at a time when almost no one, except for freaks like me, have the same curse-slash-superpower that I have, the ability to get just as pissed off about things that happened a long time ago as things that happened yesterday, no one else but freaks like me with the same useless superhero power would give a crap. My next thing to keep in mind when studying and thinking about the Power Elite is don't believe everything you read or watch or hear, even if, or perhaps especially if, it jives with your own confirmation biases. And I know this probably won't shock many of you, but there are lots of false stories and theories and quotes and things out there still floating around in conspiracy theory circles, even though many of them have been decisively debunked by serious power elite analysts for a long time. And so you should always be skeptical of the official story of things, the official explanation of things. But That doesn't mean that you should completely throw your skepticism in the garbage anytime you're confronting an unconventional explanation of these things. So just one example, there's a story that's still floating around out there among some people that JFK was killed because he was supposedly trying to end the Federal Reserve and reinstitute a silver based currency for the United States. This is simply not true. And in fact, many of the better informed and more honest people within even the quote unquote conspiracy world have said so. But there are a lot of people in the quote unquote conspiracy world who are either ignorant or they're lazy or they're just so tinfoil hat gone with confirmation bias that they're still repeating this one, even though it's been debunked eight times from Sunday. And another example I'll just mention briefly is there's a false Woodrow Wilson quote that has been repeated ad nauseum out there, and this is the quote. I am a most unhappy man. I have unwittingly ruined my country. A great industrial nation is controlled by its system of credit. Our system of credit is concentrated. The growth of the nation, therefore, and all our activities are in the hands of a few men. We have come to be one of the worst ruled, one of the most completely controlled and dominated governments in the civilized world. No longer a government by free opinion, no longer a government by conviction and the vote of the majority, but a government by the opinion and duress of a small group of dominant men. End quote. Now, this is not something w- Wilson actually said in a paragraph like that, and it's also the pieces of it that are parts of things he did say he wasn't talking about what people say he was talking about who still repeat this quote so supposedly according to the people who still bandy this thing about that huge quote was uttered by wilson as if wilson spoke in ayn rand protagonist paragraphs all the time or something this quote was uttered by wilson near the end of his presidency and he's lamenting the creation of the federal reserve something which was done actually early in his first term Now, there's a lot of problems with this thing, and you can look up more on what's wrong with it if you want to. But basically what it is, is that quote is a Frankenstein chop shop spare parts paragraph composed of A, some things Wilson never actually did say, and B, some things Wilson did say in various different contexts. A lot of it, things he said before the Fed was created, In he's lamenting the the pre-Fed, banking system which he hoped to replace with the fed (laughs) okay so don't believe everything you read watch or hear and even if something does jive with what you already know and believe that doesn't mean that specific piece of information or quote or whatever is true next thing i think that one should keep in mind is to, when studying the power elite, look for conflicts of interest and ulterior motives, like people trying to make money off of something that they're trying to sell to you as this noble, greater good sort of a project. Look for those things. They're certainly there. But on the flip side, don't assume that the beliefs and ideology never matter to at least some people within the power elite. They're not all just looking for more money. Some of them are true believers. Many of them are true believers in some sort of ideology and some sort of project. And to be honest with you, I often think those sorts of people are scarier and more dangerous than the ones who are just looking to augment their pile of wealth. Next, look for factionalism and try and figure out the conflicts between different groups and individuals. Sometimes this is easy and obvious. Sometimes it's tougher to figure out. And this is something where I think... A bunch of years of hindsight often helps you to get clarity about really what the what the factions are and, and what the fault lines are. Next, keep in mind, though it's not as intricately and explicitly organized as a military unit or a mafia family, nonetheless, there are clear rankings of both families and individuals within the power elite. There are gophers, kind of low-level guys who get stuff done for much higher-up people. There are sort of like front men or sock puppets, which a lot of people in elective office, I would see this way. And then there are the layers of the truly elite of the elite. And in general, most of the time, the people that you see being senators or even presidents or cabinet secretaries or running the CIA or whatever, most of the time, those people are not the people at the very tippy top. Even the Bushes, as high up and connected as they are, are not at the top of the pyramid. Next, don't assume that any one analyst or writer, no matter how much you might respect him, has got this stuff 100% ironed out. Even the most brilliant people who've done great work on this have made errors or they have blind spots or omissions. They have things they just didn't look. You know, nobody can look at everything. I'm not saying that it's necessarily a deliberate blind spot, but just no one can know anything um, or I should say nobody can know everything about a topic. Nobody can think to look in every possible nook and cranny in place. And then there's the fact, of course, that a lot of the more secretive doings of the power elite are not the types of things that leave a paper trail or other sort of trail. And there are a lot of things that are done secretly that never, ever come out. So don't assume that any one person who's writing or speaking about this has everything 100% figured out and be very skeptical and very leery of someone who explicitly claims that they've got it 100% figured out. Personally, I see even the best practitioners of power elite analysis as being sort of like the old fable of the blind men and the elephant where they're each feeling different parts of the elephant and trying to say what they think it is and so one guy feels the elephant's trunk and he says oh it's a snake and another guy feels one of the elephant's legs and says oh this is a tree and so on and so on i think to some degree that's kind of what's going on just because of the constraints of reality and information and human fallibility Now, I'm over an hour already, so I'm going to wrap this up soon, and I hope I've given you some stuff to think about. I hope I've raised more questions than I've given answers, but I'm going to leave on a somewhat hopeful note, and I want to say it's at least possible that the days of the power elite easily running the show and controlling the narrative and exercising genuine intellectual and cultural hegemony are numbered, and it's largely simply due to technology. If you look at things like WikiLeaks and the hacks of Power Elite emails, for example, you can sort of see this. And if you look at the ability of quote-unquote regular people who are not massive corporations and not members of the Power Elite, people like me, to put out media content that whatever else you think about it is genuinely independent, and to do so on a shoestring budget, something that is Completely unprecedented and would have been unheard of just a generation ago. That when you look at these sorts of things, it's possible they may be losing their grip. It's becoming harder for a handful of elite institutions to control things like they used to and you can constantly find them wring their hands in public about oh it's so horrible that any tom dick or harry can have a youtube show and a podcast and a blog and whatever all these people aren't legit media i only want to talk to the new york times and the washington post And, of course, they're trying to clamp down on this, and it's this interesting back-and-forth sort of race where they're trying to clamp down on these aspects of technology that liberate people at the same time the technology is racing ahead every day. And on the subject of technology, it's true that it's a two-edged sword, and that they can and they are trying to use it in various ways to reassert control and influence with some success here and there. For example, by simply controlling what order topics or web pages come up on a Google search, they can drastically influence people's beliefs, believe it or not. But I think if intelligent people of genuine goodwill and independence fight the good fight in whatever ways they can, that the power elite, while they may have some temporary successes, they might in the long term lose. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Please check out the website, P-R-O-F-C-J dot O-R-G. That's P-R-O-F-C-J dot O-R-G. There you can find show notes for all the episodes, links, and other information. You can also email subscribe to the website by putting in your email in the little subscribe box off to the side there. And if you do that, you'll get an email notification every time something new is posted at the website. I promise you won't get any spam or anything... Uh, from me if you sign up there. You'll just get an announcement every time something new is posted on the website, which most of the time means a new episode, but occasionally is another sort of announcement or what have you. Please feel free to contact me with questions, comments, or other things. The email address is profcj at profcj.org. That's profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with the show and follow it on social media, like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, and you can find the show in podcast venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. You can subscribe there. Uh, By subscribing in iTunes, you'll help the show rise in the iTunes charts, and of course that will help grow the show's audience. If you like this show and want to see it continue to keep going and to grow and to improve, there are a lot of ways you can help support it. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History podcast to anyone you think might appreciate it. You can also help spread the word by leaving ratings and reviews in podcast venues like iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, we very much need and appreciate financial support. You can go to profcj.org slash donate to see a whole bunch of different ways that you would help the show out financially. One, of course, is patreon.com slash profcj, where if you pledge to Help out the show with a donation of at least $1 per episode. Remember, not only will I thank you by name in the next episode that I make, but you'll also have access to bonus episodes that I put there periodically that are available nowhere else. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal at profcj.org slash donate, and I have a Bitcoin address if you want to donate that way. And of course, a final way you can help out the show financially is when you do your Amazon shopping go to Amazon through any of my affiliate Amazon links on my website. And if you do that, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small cut, a little commission from anything you purchase at no additional cost to you. Thanks again for listening. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.